following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. We sing you are worthy to be praised with all of our being. And yet we can't fully understand your greatness because we truly are low and vile and small sinners. And yet we've gathered today as your church, sinners saved by grace, still bearing the marks of that sin, still walking daily in that battle between heaven and hell. And so, Father, even now as we think of our sins and we confess them to you, forgive, forgive, forgive your people. We pray today, Father, that you would use your church in the world. That we'd be a bright lighthouse on this road to shine forth your truth to this community, to our neighbors. To those we speak to in the grocery store line and those we speak to across the fence and those... We show love to who need your love desperately. So, Father, use us here in this place to proclaim your truth, proclaim your word with boldness and power, strength and love. And prepare the way by your Spirit into the hearts that we proclaim to, so that they might come to know you as Lord and Savior. And today, as your word is proclaimed, we pray too that you would open our hearts to the great truths of Scripture, so that we might leave this place a changed people, renewed in spirit, renewed in our hope, renewed in our minds and in our hearts. We pray that every time we encounter your word, Father, do your work today by the power of your spirit and speak through our pastor with power, bless his preparation, use him for your glory this day. Remove him so that we might see Jesus in him alone. In his name we pray. Amen. I invite you, if you would, to turn your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 11.
Hey, it's Super Bowl Sunday. Did you know that? How many of you plan on watching the game? After you go to home groups. How many of you plan on watching the game? Nobody wanted to really commit to that. It was kind of like, I don't know, this. How many of you are pulling for the Patriots tonight? Well, both of you. Congratulations. (laughs) How many of you are pulling for the Seahawks tonight? The Seahawks. Okay, we have more committal there. How many of you could care less? That's... I'm, I'm in your club, by the way. Just happened to see an article this morning in the news that maybe will sway your opinion if you're in between deciding. It's an article on ESPN.com. Um, according to ESPN.com, Jack Easterby, Jack Easterby is on staff with the Patriots. Uh, he's treated a little differently than most team chaplains because he's a full-time chaplain. Did you know that the New England Patriots had a full-time chaplain? They need one. That's what I knew was coming. I knew that was coming. Listen, listen. This is what caught my attention, the article. This is what caught my attention. The the, the title says, Tom Brady says, Team Chaplain, a reason for success of Patriots. Listen to that. I mean, that's just a visceral reaction from the audience there. Listen. I don't know what's going on in the back. I don't want to know. Um. Listen, the team chaplain is, a, is normally a pastor at a local church who volunteers to host Saturday chapel for 10 or so players who attend and is compensated with cash and a collection plate. That's how it normally works in the NFL. But in New England's case, Jack Easterby has an office, and it's near Coach Bill Belichick's. And it ought to be, is that what you were going to say? I was waiting on it, and you didn't, you didn't do it. Um, The more he can do, the more he does. He hosts Bible study, works coaches' hours in his office, counseling players and their wives, throws passes in practice to Darrell Revis, and sometimes even jumps in on the scout team drills. When he's not listening, he's texting. When he's not texting, he's writing players and coaches' individual notes, recapping their personal goals and reminding them of how thankful he is to know them. The Patriots, since his hire, say they're not the same, no matter what happens in the Super Bowl, and no matter the result of the uh, investigation into deflate gates. Uh, the owner, Robert Kraft, calls Easterby a wonderful individual, and Tom Brady has told friends that Easterby is one of the main reasons for the Patriots' success. Safety Devin McCourty calls him, quote, a godsend to this team who's, quote, helped create better men. Now, I don't care who wins. I'm kind of impartial to the Patriots now. Now, I'm not telling you that you should be swayed that way. Um, You know, you pull for the Seahawks if you like. And at the end of the day, no one will really care after about a week, right? But the rest of the stuff we'll talk about this morning, people do care about and should forever. So let's move on to things that matter. John chapter 11, verse 45 through 57. uh, We're going to finish up chapter 11 today. Um kind of wrapping up this section that deals with the resurrection of Lazarus, this remarkable miracle that we've been looking at for several weeks that Pastor Frank has been walking us through. Um, I'm kind of batting clean up here and um, finishing up the text and moving our way towards chapter 12. So let's pick up in verse 45. We'll just read the text down through verse 57, and we'll spend a few minutes in it. John writes, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, 
what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not only for the nation, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there uh, to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. This text kind of represents a very important turning point in the Gospel of, of John. We mentioned this way back at the beginning when we did the introduction to this book and began to study it, that the book of Gospel of John kind of falls into two uh, large sections. You can separate it a lot of different ways, but largely in two big sections. Chapter 1 through 11 uh, really deals with the life and public ministry of Jesus. It covers a period of somewhere between two to three years of his life and time. Um, so a pretty lengthy period of, of time. A lot of events that happen in those peri- that period of time are, are, are covered kind of quickly in the first chapter, first 11 chapters of the Gospel of John. When we shift over to chapter 12, as we'll do next week, uh, from chapter 12 to the end of the gospel, the next 10 chapters, almost as much as we've traveled so far, the next 10 chapters deal with one week, one week, the last week of the life and ministry of Jesus, the last week of his life. And so you can see from just the content that John has chosen to include in his gospel what he wants us to see most, right? He wants us to zoom in and focus in on this last week of the life of Jesus. And he's going to cover it in far more detail than he's covered the first two to three years of his public life in ministry. And we're going to be traveling starting next week through that last week in detail as John gives it to us. And we're going to see our Savior's life, I pray, in ways that will be transformative for each of us. Uh, Every event John records is going to be important and critical for us to look at in depth. But today we want to close out chapter 11 and kind of make the transition. Um, What what we look at today is really what could best be called the fallout from the Lazarus event, if you will. The resurrection of Lazarus caused caused a stir. I mean, it had to have caused a stir. It It was an unbelievable, unheard of sort of a miracle, right? I mean, who'd ever heard of someone raising a man from the dead who'd been in the grave for four days? And as Pastor Frank told us last week in King James, who stinketh, right? Four days in a tomb, no embalming, you stinketh. And yet, 
He's up and he's walking and he's breathing and he's talking and he's given testimony of what Christ has done in his life. He's walking around saying, I was dead and I was in a grave for four days and now I'm alive and I'm walking. Who can, how do you, how do you push back against that miracle? How do you look at Lazarus in the face and say, no way, I don't believe it. But many did, as we'll see. This event And this miracle was inarguably evidence of the deity of Christ. Who could do such a thing apart from God himself? There is no logical answer to that question, is there? Who could do something like that? Who can raise a person dead and rotting as a corpse in a grave for four days and make him walk and breathe and talk and live? Who can do that? No one can do that. Only God can do that. And yet it was done. At the command of the voice of Jesus. And something this remarkable is bound to cause a stir in the community, right? It's bound to. It's bound to cause a stir. It's bound to get people talking. And it's bound to to, to captivate attention of the people. And it's also not going to surprise us that it's going to generate some really, really strong reactions. And so before we look at the final week, we need to look into the fallout here that takes place at the end of this. And it's really important because this fallout sets the stage for everything yet to come. It it forms the foundation for what's about to happen. And it helps us understand why these next series of events take place the way they do. Because this event, the, the raising of Lazarus, was kind of, if you will, the straw that broke the camel's back between Jesus and his enemies. It was the thing that just sent them over the edge. It was the thing that was the tipping point that moved them from people who were just angry, vile, evil, self-centered individuals to people who were ready to kill somebody, to commit murder. It forced action. And it drives Jesus' enemies into a murderous frenzy, and we're going to see that this morning. Uh, I want us to kind of look at this uh, text in a few ways. We're going to see first the division of the crowd. He's going to tell us what happens to the crowd uh, after this happens. What, what happens with them? How does the crowd react? And how does the, how does the crowd respond? And then we're going to see a, a little glimpse at the religious leaders. And we're going to see that these guys are, are kind of desperate after this. Um, a, a desperation kind of sets in among the religious leaders. Those who hate Jesus, those who have, have dogged his steps all along, are, are just thrown into absolute sheer desperation when this takes place. And, and they don't know what to do. They're, they're terrified. They're confused. They're, um, they're seeing their own power and their own influence waning. The handwriting is on the door for them, and they're desperate to to maintain that. And so we're going to get a glimpse into that until one man rises to the top. Uh, Cream, they tell you, rises to to the top sometimes, but also so does scum, right? And in this case, we're going to see scum. A man by the name of Caiaphas is going to rise to the uh, to the surface, and he's going to be a very determined enemy of Jesus. And he's going to lay out for the religious leaders a plan to deal with the problem. And we're going to see that. And then at the end of the text, we'll see another discussion, another conversation that comes up amongst the crowd. So we start with the crowd and we end with the crowd. And in between, we deal with a council and with a man named Caiaphas. So that's what we'll look at this morning. Let's look at the first, the division of the crowd. We get that in verses 45 and 46. John says, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come up with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. 
We've seen this many times throughout the Gospel of John. We've seen many times how the truth of the Gospel of Jesus Christ ultimately has the effect of division. It divides people. Get that this morning. The, the Gospel divides. Did you hear that? It divides. It does not primarily unify. It primarily, at least in the, on the surface, it divides people. It separates people. We'll see that this morning. We've seen it all throughout John's Gospel. Every time Jesus does one of these miracles, the same division takes place that takes place here after the Lazarus event. Now, I will say this. On one, on one level, the Gospel unites. There is a sense in which the Gospel of Jesus Christ unites people. How is that? Well, it, 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 it brings people from different races and from different economic statuses and from different social statuses and from different, different ethnic heritage. And, and, and all of these things that divide us on a social level, the gospel brings people from all those different categories together at the foot of the same cross. It, it shows them that every one of them, no matter who they are and where they're from, is equally a sinner, right? And equally in need of a Savior to redeem them from their sin, uh, the gospel does that. It shows that we're all equal, so it unites us at least in that way. And everyone from every one of those groups who repents and trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us, is equally forgiven, just the same, right? So there's a sense in which forgiveness unites people. No matter how, how, how dark or vile we seem to think that our sin is compared to somebody else's, uh, the scale doesn't really matter. At the end of the day, we're all desperately in need of the same forgiveness. And at the end of the day, we all get the same forgiveness, right? And we're equally have our slates wiped clean. It unites in the sense that everyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ is born into the same church, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And no one has status above the next inside the body of Christ. All are equally valuable in the body and equally necessary. So there's a sense in which, on one level, the gospel does unite, and then it brings different people from all sorts of places and all sorts of backgrounds together into one church and puts them on level ground. In that sense, the gospel unites. But there's another sense in which it consistently divides. That is to say that when the gospel is presented, whether it be through the words and the works of Jesus himself or through the preaching of a pastor or from the, the testimony of a missionary or from a Christian neighbor across the fence to, his, to the person who lives next door to him, it has the same effect. It divides. People are forced to make a decision. And it's one way or the other. They either believe or they reject. You see that? And it divides. If the gospel is presented to a crowd, it will divide that crowd. There will be some in that crowd who will believe and receive it. There will be others who will reject it and walk away. You can count on it. That's what it does. Because the gospel brings a confrontation to the human soul with the person and work of Jesus. And it demands, absolutely demands a response. And nobody walks away from it undecided. Division is very stark and it's very serious. Luke tells us, uh, he reports Jesus saying this in Luke chapter 12, verse 51 and following. He says this, do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? What's his own answer to his own question? No, I don't. I tell you, I've come for division, rather division. From now on, in one house, there'll be five divided, three against and two uh, against and two against three. What, what is he talking about? The gospel divides, Right. It's going to, the gospel invades a family, and even within a family, there are going to be some who receive it, and there are going to be some who reject it. It divides. 
Within a neighborhood, it divides. Within a community, it divides. It forces people to respond, and some people will respond one way, and others will respond another. And there's only two potential responses. Jesus said in Matthew 12, verse 30, he said these words. He said, whoever is not with me is what? Against me. And whoever doesn't gather with me scatters. He doesn't leave open the possibility of a third way, right? It's one or the other. You're with him, you receive him, you believe, or you're against him, and you're his enemy. And you don't gather with him, you scatter. Those are the two options. The response that's generated may be a passionate, distinct sort of a decision one way or the other, or it may be a passive sort of unclear decision one way or the other. But in either case, it's a decision nonetheless. No one walks away undecided. When confronted with the gospel, there are those who passionately believe it and are miraculously transformed at the moment. The Apostle Paul and perhaps many of you. There are others for whom they receive the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a momentous moment in their life where the change is very gradual and the passion begins to grow over time. But it's belief. There are those who passionately reject the gospel, as we'll see in our text this morning. With violence and with hatred. And there are others who passively reject the gospel. They simply hear it, shrug their shoulders and say, ah, whatever. Or, that's for another time. I'll deal with that later. I'm not sure I need that right this moment. There's really not that much of a distinction between the outright hostile rejection and that kind of rejection. Because the Bible tells us they both end in the same hell. Right? But they're not different reactions. They're the same. It's just a matter of intensity. Because Jesus said, you're either with me or you're against me. And the gospel forces that division. And that's what we see in this text. John reports to us, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did, they believed in him. It divided. There were many, many. Don't you love to see that word connected with the word believed? There were many who believed in him. That is great news. Lazarus wasn't the only resurrection that took place in that location on that day. He was the only one whose body was in a grave rotting for four days and was resurrected. But many people experienced a resurrection of their soul. There were many who saw what Jesus did, who heard him say, Lazarus, come forth and watch that man walk out of the tomb. There were many who witnessed that perhaps most, if not the vast majority of those who saw that, In a moment's notice, they believed. In an instant, their eyes were open to who Jesus really was. He was no longer just a prophet or a good man or a great teacher. All of a sudden, their eyes were open to see this is God in flesh. This is none other than God of the universe who created me and gave me breath and who sustains me every moment, who is in front of me in human flesh. This is who he is. He's the Messiah who's come. In a moment's time, they saw that. And they received that truth into their heart and they believed in him. And in that moment, their dead souls came to life in him. Resurrected. Many, many people resurrected in that moment. Their eyes were opened. They saw him for who he really was. God in flesh has power over death and the grave. Who has that but God? Many believed. This is John's hope for writing the gospel, isn't it? 
John wrote this gospel so that everyone who would read it would have that same response and that same reaction. That upon reading the words of what, you know, that he writes about what Jesus said and Jesus did, that eyes would be open and hearts would be quickened to life and people's dead souls would be resurrected because they would see Jesus for who he is and place their faith in him. That was John's hope in writing this. That is our hope every time we open it up and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. That the same response would happen in the hearts of men and women, and that many would receive Him. That's what we pray for every Sunday when we open God's Word and expose the gospel of Jesus to people who will hear it. And by the way, God is still making that happen all over the world. Right now, even as we speak. Praise God for that response, right? Praise God that wherever the gospel goes out, God's got people who will hear it and they'll receive it, and their eyes will be opened, and they'll embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. We have that confidence. We have that confidence as people who preach and teach and take the gospel into a world of lost people, that God has people out there who will hear it, who will receive it, and this will be their response. That's why we're called to go. That's the encouragement for going. But not everyone, right? Because the gospel divides... And it divided on that day. Some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Some of that same group. Some of that same group. Some of the same people who were there, who saw Jesus before that tomb, who heard him say, Lazarus, come forth, who watched a dead man walk out and his family overjoyed, who saw his, 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 the power of his voice even over death and life and a grave. People saw that and they rejected it. They rejected it. How do we know that? They went to the Pharisees. They didn't go to the Pharisees just to inform them. They knew exactly who these men were. They understood that these were Jesus' enemies who were hell-bent on snuffing out his ministry. They went to them because they wanted them to have the latest update on what this enemy was doing. They were choosing sides, and they chose the wrong side. They chose the Pharisees over Jesus. It is a clear rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. They saw the same miracle. And in spite of the obvious conclusion, they reject. They reject. And I would suggest that if that event wasn't enough evidence for the deity of Jesus, there never could possibly be enough evidence for those folks. And there are folks like that today, right? You'll run into them. If you share the gospel, you'll run into people just like that. It doesn't matter how much evidence you present to them that the Lord Jesus Christ is who he said he is, that that he did what he said he had done, that he died and was buried in their place and rose again three days later, and that they could receive him, uh, that if they would receive them, they could have their sins forgiven and receive eternal life. You you could tell them all the time, all, all day long, you could present all the evidence in the world that you want to, and there's no amount of evidence that's enough to convince a hardened heart. If seeing a dead man four days walk out of a grave isn't enough, there's never enough, right? There's never enough. It's a kind of hard-hearted, core of a human being rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ that apart from an absolute miracle of the Holy Spirit, absolutely will not receive the Lord and will not believe. 
That's what we saw on that day. And that's what we still see today. That's still the response. That's still what the gospel does. It's still how it divides every time it goes out. There are those who open, whose eyes are open and they receive it. There are those whose hearts are hardened and they reject it. If you're going to share the gospel, you better expect both responses. If you're going to get discouraged and you're going to get distraught and you're going to get all down in the dumps and want to throw your hands up in the air every time somebody rejects the gospel, then you're not going to share it very much. You're going to be the kind of Christian who doesn't ever share it at all. Because if you share it, you will get that response. Maybe even more often than not. But it's not the only response. There are many who believe. And there are many who still believe. But the gospel divides. It divided that crowd. It divides crowds in our day. But this event had really stirred up the community. Even those who had rejected it were talking about it, right? I mean, it may be that they've rejected it, but there's still a buzz, and they're still spreading the word, and everybody is finding out about this miracle that's taken place. And so that throws this, this, this religious establishment of Israel into sheer desperation. Look at verse 47 and verse 48. It tells us, John does, that the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Well, we're introduced to two groups here, the Pharisees and the chief priests. Now, we've seen the Pharisees along the way, right? You recall these guys? John has reported to us about them a few times now along the way. The Pharisees were the religious leaders of Israel. That's what you need to know about them. They were the religious scholars. They were the religious experts. They were the experts at the Old Testament law. And they saw it as their job to teach the law and to go around enforcing the law on everybody to the, to the, to the finest degree that they possibly could. Now, these people were no strangers to Jesus, right? Every time it seems like he did a miracle or did something particularly on or in or around Jerusalem, they show up on the scene. And if you read the Gospels, you find that constantly throughout, they're, they're kind of dogging his trail, trying to find ways to trip him up, trying to find ways to trap him, trying to find ways to catch him uh, in some sort of an error so they can accuse him of being a blasphemer. But they're never able to do it. They always try, and they always end up going away embarrassed and ashamed because of their utter failure to do what they set out to accomplish. They are the religious leaders But they don't have political power to act against Jesus unilaterally. That's why they're only religious leaders. And so, John tells us they form an alliance with another crowd, the chief priests. The chief priests are a whole different group. The chief priests come out of the priesthood. Um, The chief priests were largely people who were drawn out of the extended family of the high priests. Okay? There's the high priest. He is the... Well, he's the highest of the priests. Okay, you got that part, right? Um, There are other high priests who used to be high priests but are not currently at the moment serving. And in their extended families were people who wanted to be chief priests and they were pulled out of their families to be that. So it was connected to the family and it was also a very political process to become one of these chief priests. But what's interesting is that virtually all of the priests and all the chief priests were Sadducees, not Pharisees. Okay, two names of groups that we've talked about a few times, but just... In order for you to remember, Pharisees, religious leaders, the Sadducees were the wealthy, uh, aristocratic, political leaders. You see the difference? Religious leaders, politicians. Fair enough? All right. We still have both in our day. 
The religious leaders did not have the kind of political authority to do anything about Jesus other than what they had been trying to do all along. But the chief priests and the political leaders did have the authority and they did have the power to do something. And so they come together uh, and, and, and form an alliance, if you will. Um, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, hate Jesus. Why? What you all just said. He was a threat to their religious power. They were the religious leaders. And they had gotten wealthy and powerful based on their ability to lead the religion and to keep people under their thumb by means of using religion for their own advantage. The Sadducees hated Jesus for another reason. It had nothing to do with their religion or their devout spirituality. It had everything to do with their whole existence as politicians revolved around keeping and maintaining their power. Not much has changed, right? And so on the one hand, Jesus is a threat to the religious establishment. On the other hand, on the other hand, the Pharisees are going to convince the Sadducees that he's not only a religious threat, but now he's a political threat to their power. And these two groups, who for the most part couldn't stand each other, now form an alliance. What's that old saying? A common enemy makes strange bedfellows. This is a good example. These two groups were normally bitterly at each other's throat, but they both hate Jesus, and so they come together here to deal with the problem. And it tells us they come together and gather the council. The council referred to here is the Sanhedrin, which was the, basically the, the, the highest judiciary in Israel. You recall at the time what's going on. You've got Israel that exists underneath Roman rule. They exist within the Roman, the Roman Empire. The Romans are the ultimate rulers, right? But they've allowed Israel to kind of self-subsist underneath their rule. And as long as the leaders of Israel kept everything cool on the surface and held down any rebellions or anything and didn't become a thorn in the side of the Roman leaders, they'd just let them alone and let them do their thing. However, there was always the threat that if things got out of hand among the Israelites, what would happen? Well, the Romans would come in and deal with the problem in a very harsh and real way. And so they have underneath that within Israel, the Sanhedrin, it's their highest judiciary, 70 members. The majority of them are Sadducees, politicians, wealthy aristocrats. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, were a minority group on the Sanhedrin. It actually served as the judiciary, the legislature, and the executive branch through the high priest. So it was all kind of together in one. So for folks like us who live under the, the, the sort of a governmental uh, environment that we live under with three separate branches. Just imagine all those branches consolidated into one group of 70 people with the high priest being the high executive, essentially the president, if you will, of the crowd. And that's what we're dealing with here. And John tells us the chief priests and the Pharisees get together the council. We don't know if it's an official meeting or sort of an ad hoc meeting. It seems to me like it's kind of an ad hoc meeting. This miracle happens. The word begins to spread. And out of desperation, they say, we've got to get our heads together and figure something out. So they gather up a posse, if you will, whoever's available together. And they have a goal. What's the goal of the council? Is it to find the truth? No. Uh, this, this council is gathered not to find truth. This council is gathered up to find a way to hold on to power. That's it. That's their only aim. And so they come together. 
And, and this fallout has got them in a state of sheer panic. I mean, they are desperate to come up with a plan. They're seeing all of their power and all of their influence threatened. They're scared out of their minds. I mean, look at the, the dialogue that John reports. I mean, they come together. It, it just kind of gives this picture of them pulling this group together, and they're kind of talking to each other. What are we going to do? I mean, this man performs signs. If, they, if something doesn't happen, if we can't figure out something, it, it's just all going to go to pot. I mean, we're going to lose everything. You kind of hear the desperation in their voice as John reports that to us. They're desperate. And it's not like these groups haven't been trying all along to do something about this, right? It's just that everything they've tried thus far has what? It's failed. It hasn't worked. As much as they've tried to oppose him, his popularity has grown. As much as they've tried to stop him, his influence has widened. And his miracles have gotten more impressive. And many are now believing They're out of their mind, desperate. And it's an interesting note here. You note that they don't challenge his miracles at all. Did you notice that? It says here, this man performs many signs. They don't challenge the credibility of his miracles. They can't. How do you challenge the credibility when Lazarus is walking around, right? Even the people who hated Jesus the most were forced to admit what he did. That it actually happened. And they don't. They don't deny it. They don't deny his miracles. They, they have to admit what he did. There were too many witnesses. They admit his power. They admit his works. Yet they reject his identity. It's hard to fathom, isn't it? Leon Morris says this. He said, unbelief can mean a complete failure to reckon with the facts. When people don't want to believe, they will always find a way of discounting even the strongest evidence. The reaction of unbelief is always to ignore the power of God, even if it's at work before one's very eyes. If you've shared the gospel much, you've, you've sat in disbelief and listening to the words of someone with a hardened heart who rejects the gospel. Who in the face of all the evidence can look back and say, I refuse to see it. It's not there. And that's what these leaders were doing. They didn't challenge his miracles. They just refused to accept what they meant. And they lay out for, two, for us two, really two major fears. What are their two major fears? They're in a tizzy. They're all, all freaked out. And they're all talking to each other. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? And, and there are two major fears that they have. Did you catch them? The first one is this. If something isn't happen, everyone's going to believe in him. All right? Everyone's going to believe in him. Well, why is that a problem? Translation. If we don't do something, we will lose our power and our influence. We'll lose our power and our influence. And people who have power and influence typically want nothing more than to keep their power and their influence with whatever means possible. There's a second fear that they have. If this thing gets out of hand, an insurrection can start. And if an insurrection starts, the Romans are going to come in and they say what? They'll come in, take away our place in our nation. Translation, if we don't get this under control, the Romans are going to come destroy our temple and they're going to take away our autonomy as a nation. Two fears. Two fears. If we don't do something about this, everyone's going to believe in him and we're going to lose our power and influence. If we don't do something about this, the... the, This thing's going to get out of hand and the Romans are going to come in and take away our temple, which we love more than anything, and remove our authority to live as an independent nation. Jesus, to them, is no longer a simple blasphemer. 
He's now a threat to the very existence of the nation. Did you hear that? And here's the irony of it all. The things that they feared the worst, that they were so afraid of, that they were trying desperately to avoid, happen anyway. Because of their actions, happen anyway. By A.D. 70, the Pharisees fall off of the planet. You never hear of them anymore because the Romans come in. They destroy the temple. They destroy Jerusalem. They scatter the believers who aren't killed. I mean, the Israelites who are not killed. And everything that they were trying so desperately to preserve, they lose. It's sad, really, isn't it? It's sad and it's ironic that the very thing that they're trying desperately to hold on to, they can't possibly hold on to. And the actions, the course of action that they take actually sets the course for them to get what they desperately don't want. Thinking they're fixing a problem, they're actually speeding it up. And you notice there's, there's all kinds of exaggeration here, right? Are these real threats? Are these real threats? Are, 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 is everybody believing in Jesus? We followed this a good bit now. Jesus said a lot and he's done a lot. Are the majority of people believing Jesus? Or are the majority of people walking away? Yes, yes. Number two, the majority of people are walking away. In this case, it seems like many of the people believed the Lazarus event. But all along, the crowds have gathered, and when the, Jesus speaks to them, the larger part of the crowd walks away, and then there's a remnant who believes and stays. There's nowhere near everyone believing in him. That's an exaggeration out of fear. Um, is Jesus an insurrectionist? Does Jesus encourage his followers to rebel against the government? No. Instead, he tells them to, to do things like render unto Caesar what? What is Caesar's and to God what is God's? He encourages them to pay taxes and to submit to the authorities that are placed over them. He's not a threat to Rome. He's not, he's not calling anyone to armed insurrection against the government. He's not calling anyone to anything like that, is he? No, it's no threat at all. The followers of Jesus are not insurrectionists waiting to blow up. But that's how they're painted. That's how the evil mind of these evil men paint him. And perhaps they actually believe their own lies. But regardless, they're in a frenzy and they are flipping out. They're flipping out. In the midst of all of this, I told you the scum rises to the top. And in verse 49, we're introduced to him and he gets a name. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. How do you like that? He walks right into the crowd of these guys who were just kind of buzzing among themselves. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? He says, you're all fools. You don't know anything. Nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people not that the whole nation should perish. Caiaphas, Joseph Caiaphas, Caiaphas was the family name. He was the high priest from about A.D. 18 to about A.D. 36. 18 years. And this time period in history, that was a really long time as a high priest. In the Old Testament, high priests were appointed for a lifetime term. But by the time we get to this day, um, and under Roman rule, you didn't survive a lifetime as a high priest. Because the Romans wanted stability. And any time a high priest didn't keep the stability very well, you know what the Romans did? So you're out of here, dude. And they picked a new one and put somebody else in there to give it a try. 
And so Caiaphas had maintained that, that position for 18 years, so he had been pretty good at keeping things on the level and keeping things calm. He's mentioned nine times in the New Testament. Matthew, Luke, John, and Acts all report on this man. And his historical presence, interestingly enough, is testified by two sources outside of the Bible. Did you know that? Just a little nugget of, of information for you. Because you'll probably run into those people that I do sometime who say that the Bible is just all made up. It's not actual history. These people aren't real. They were just made up and blah, 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 blah. You, you, you get that? So just so you know... Uh, This is one of those places where there's an awful lot of evidence that this man, who the Bible claims to be who he is, is actually, there's evidence outside of the Bible for him. There's two places. Flavius Josephus, who is uh, a Jewish historian, uh, writes a lot about this man, Caiaphas. Um, He's not particularly, Josephus, not particularly biased towards Christianity. He was Jewish. But in his writings, he corroborates the man's name, his position, and his time of service, just as the New Testament says it. And then secondly, something really interesting happened back in 1990. You all were alive in 1990, right? Did you know something very significant happened in relation to Caiaphas in 1990? A few yeses, mostly noes. I didn't really know either. Something was found by accident in the Middle East that verified an awful lot about what the Bible says about this man. There was a construction project going on, and in the midst of that construction uh, uh, process, uh, there was an accident that took place, and it caved in uh, what was a tomb. And inside the tomb, they found 12 ossuaries. I'm not very good at saying that word, but do you know what an ossuary is or an ossuary? It's a box of bones. Okay, so when you don't embalm people and you put them in a cave after they die, what do you think happens pretty fast? They rot, okay? They stinketh, and then they rot. And after a period of time, everything rots except for the bones. And so... When that period of time is allotted, uh, the relatives would then go back into the tomb. They would collect the bones and put them in ossuaries and bone boxes. And that way the tomb could be used for, guess what? Oh, yep. More people that stinketh later. Um, others in the family, if you will. So one of these boxes was found, and in it, uh, well, there were, there were 12 boxes found, but one of them was a particularly ornate box. And what's interesting about that is they were common in, they were common, these boxes were common in their area around Jerusalem about the time of, of, of Herod, um, but after AD 70, they disappeared from the scene. So this, this method of burial was only really around during this time in which the, the, the New Testament talks about Caiaphas, okay? So that helps us some. But in the midst of this, there were two ossuaries that contained the the family named Caiaphas, and there was one, a particular one, that held the remains of six people, and one of those people was about 60 years old, and it was particularly ornate in its decoration. And on the outside of it was inscribed in... inscribed an inscription, Joseph, the son of Caiaphas. Um, I think I have a picture of that, don't I, JP? This was what it looked like. And you see the inscription on the side there? Um, It was done likely after the ossuary was put on the shelf by someone with a a nail uh, or something sharp like that on the outside, inscribed that on the outside. I think a closer description of it right there. Joseph, son of Caiaphas. Um, And so it's a man who fits the description. It's an ornate ossuary that would indicate that the person, at least one of the people whose bones were in that box, was a pretty important dude. And... Or doodad, I guess, but mostly in this day, dudes. And and so uh, the bones were someone that should have been about the age of this man Caiaphas. 
And also inside the tomb was found a coin of Herod, the, Herod, Herod Agrippa I and dated A.D. 42-43. So all of that points to it's probably a good chance that this guy's bones were in that box. And all that evidence points to exactly what the New Testament says, that there was a man named Caiaphas about that age who was a very important person in Israel about that time. More verification from outside of the text that what the Bible says is true. Not that we need that, but it's there. He was the high priest that year. And I've already told you that year indicates not that they were just one-year terms, but it indicates that on that important year, that year when all this took place, This man was the high priest. And he walks into the scene in all of this chaos. These people freaking out over what they're going to do about this Jesus. And he walks in, and I picture him walking in with a calm demeanor. And he says, man, I have the solution. Here's the solution. Here is the solution. It's better that one man should die for the people than for the whole nation to perish. It's better. I have a better solution. I have a solution that's better for you. I have a solution that's better for this nation. It's better for everybody that this man die. Rather than what? Rather than the whole nation perish. And you know, this must have instantly made so much sense to them, right? It must have. It's better better for everyone if Jesus is killed. It's better for one man to die than a whole nation. If we kill him, then the Romans won't kill us. It's better for everybody that way. This man says this and he has no idea what he's saying. He has absolutely no idea what he's saying. He's saying it's necessary for Jesus to die in order to save this nation. If we don't kill him, the nation is in danger. An insurrection will start and the Romans will come in and crush us. That's his concern. He doesn't know there's a greater danger to the nation. And so he says, here's the solution, men. We kill him. We kill him. So if you were writing a template for how to justify murder, you see it right here. Here's the steps, right? Step number one, you define a crisis and you pinpoint blame. That's what they did. They defined a crisis, even made up or exaggerated a crisis, and they pinpointed the blame, right? You define a crisis, pinpoint the blame. Then you claim that murder is expedient in this case. Then you argue that it's the lesser of two evils. If we don't do this bad thing, then something worse is going to happen, right? And then you argue that it's in the public's best interest. And now you've made a case for murder. It's exactly what they did, right? It's expedient. It's the quickest, best way to deal with this problem. It's the lesser of two evils. If we don't kill this guy, I mean, look at the worst things that are going to happen. He has to be killed. It's in the public's best interest for him to be snuffed out. That's how to justify murder. That's their argument. The truth of the matter is, it's selfish, it's unjust, and it's evil. What they were planning. Incidentally, it's the same justification used in our day to justify things like abortion and euthanasia, right? It's expedient. 
It's better for everybody just to, just to kill them. It's better for everybody for these unwanted babies just to be snuffed right out. It's better for the community. It's the lesser of two evils. I mean, what if we have all these, this swamp of kids who are unwanted running around? I mean, how could the nation sustain that? It's better to just, it's better to just kill them. It's in the public's best interest. It's in the best interest of women. It's how we still justify murder. The same with old people in euthanasia. And so they justify murder. Caiaphas suggests murder as a solution. Craig Keener said this, Sacrificing the few for the many makes good politics, but bad religion. And he's right. But John tells us something else. He says, he did not say this of his own accord, this is verse 51, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not only for the nation, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. John tells us something critical. This is the critical passage in this text. John tells us something going on here. There's something going on that Caiaphas doesn't know, and Caiaphas doesn't understand, and the council doesn't know, and the council doesn't understand. There's more meaning to what Caiaphas said than what Caiaphas intended. Caiaphas thinks that he came up with a great solution. He does not know that he's uttering a prophecy straight from the mind of God. Caiaphas unwittingly, this scumbag of a man, unwittingly, utters one of the most important truths of Christianity. He prophesied, John tells us. He spoke the words of God. He spoke God's words. God brought these words to his mind. God put these words there. God has a meaning for them, a meaning that Caiaphas doesn't understand. Do you see it? While he's explaining his justification for the murder of Jesus, he unknowingly explains the nature and the extent of the atonement of Jesus on the cross. He verbally expresses Christ's substitutionary atonement. He doesn't know that when he says to his colleagues in his evil, diabolical plan that it's better for this man to die, that it really is better for this man to die. Just not the way he meant it. He doesn't really understand that when he says it's better for this nation for him to die, then it really is better for the nation for him to die. Just not the way Caiaphas meant it. He expresses what's called substitutionary atonement. The idea that Jesus Christ died in your place and in mine. That he died as a substitute for sinners on the cross you get that? He died in our place. He died so that we would not have to. It's what was pictured in the whole entire sacrificial system that Israel had, had practiced, right? All of the sacrificial system pointed to this, that ultimately there was a lamb, an ultimate lamb of God who was to come, who was ultimately once and for all going to die in the place of sinners so that they might be redeemed and saved. It was what the prophets had been saying all along. Isaiah 53, verse 4, Surely he's borne our griefs and he's carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Verse 6, And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And in verse 10, It was the will of the Lord to crush him. 
he has put him to grief. This is the central message of Christianity, that God substituted Jesus for us. Do you get that? That he died so that we wouldn't have to. That he died so that we would be saved. God crushed his son so that he wouldn't have to crush you and me. Do you understand that this morning? From the lips of one of the biggest scumbags in the history of the world, one of the greatest truths of Christianity was spoken. Caiaphas has an evil plan to murder his competition, and yet at the same time God delivers a plan to sacrifice his son to save his people. In the same statement, Caiaphas meant one thing, God meant something altogether different. Under the guise of saving these people, Caiaphas presents a plan. But in reality, his plan condemns him and most of his nation. John Piper said this. Listen. Caiaphas wanted Jesus dead and out of the way, so he spoke these words. God wanted Jesus dead and risen and reigning forever, so he spoke these words. In the mind of Caiaphas, the substitution was this. We kill Jesus so the Romans won't kill us. In the mind of God, the substitution was this. I will kill my son so I don't have to kill you. Caiaphas was right. It was a substitution. It just wasn't the one he was talking about. God had in mind a whole different deal. Something that is so true and so real and so critical that it should break us to the heart That God would kill his son so that he doesn't have to kill us. That Jesus would endure what he endures on our behalf as our substitute. One author says Caiaphas was a prophet in spite of himself, and he was. Verse 53, so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. The plan is hatched. The plan is received, and now it's all but acted on. Now it's a a settled decision. Jesus is going to be murdered. The only question at this point is when and how. You know, there's a height of hatred underneath this. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? There's a hatred for the person in the work of Jesus Christ. It's hard to... How can you watch what he did? How can you hear the things that he said? How can you see the change at work in the lives of the people who believed in him and hate him so much as these religious leaders did? How could he, how could he generate such hatred from people? I, I, I don't fully understand the answer. But I know that I see that hatred still alive and well in our world today. Jesus still generates that kind of hatred. Christians in the world, in our nation, still generate that kind of hatred I read an article this week uh, that caught my attention. It says, sociologists, quote, Christianophobia, anti-Christian hostility infects powerful elite subculture. Two sociologists, David Williamson and George Yancey, college professors, wrote a book, a new book. It's called, So Many Christians, So Few Lions. Is there Christianophobia in the United States? And they did a study to try and find out, because it seemed to them that there was this subculture of hatred and anger towards Christ, and particularly towards Christians in American culture. And they did a study on this to try and identify the location of it and the reality of it. And you know what they found? They found that within the, the social and intellectual elites of our culture, 
it is a hotbed of hatred towards Christianity and Christians. One of the quotes in the book says this. Yancey, one of the articles, uh, author, says this. In the minds of many of the respondents, Christians are ignorant, intolerant, and stupid individuals who are unable to think for themselves. The general image is that, that they have of Christians is that they're backward, non-critical thinking, childlike people who do not like science and want to interfere with the lives of everyone else. But even worse... They see ordinary Christians as having been manipulated by evil Christian leaders and will vote in whatever way the leaders want. They believe that those leaders are trying to set up a theocracy to force everybody to accept their Christian beliefs. And so for some, this is a struggle for our society and our ability to move toward a progressive society. Christians are often seen as the great evil force that blocks our society from achieving this progressive paradise. Did you get that last sentence? Christians are often seen as the great evil force that blocks our society from achieving this progressive paradise. Well, Christians, how do you feel about being characterized that way? It's how you're seen by a major portion of the intellectual and social elite of our nation. It's this very kind of attitude and thinking that is absolutely, absolutely ruling the educational system, the government educational system, particularly in higher education. If you haven't been to a college campus and sat under a college professor lately uh, in the public system, you'll see that all the time. Ask your college students that you know if you don't believe it. Great evil force There's a hatred toward Christianity. They see us as an evil force that blocks society from achieving its progressive paradise. Well, it's partially true because Jesus said in John chapter 7, verse 7, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. The reason people hated Jesus is because he exposed their sin and their evil and their darkness. And people who walk in the darkness want nothing more than to remain in the darkness and not to be exposed and called out for their evil and their sinful hearts. And so when people come along and expose their sin, often the response is a vile hatred. And you know what? One of the purposes for the church of Jesus Christ in our culture and in every culture is to hold back the the absolute hundred mile per hour speed toward the pit of hell in the culture. One One of the functions of the church in society is to be a restraining force against evil. There's no doubt in our society and in our community and in our culture that there is a vast and quick movement toward a moral sewer. And if you think what we've seen thus far is something, you got nothing based on what's coming down the pipe. And those who are running that agenda, empowered by Satan himself, frankly, the whole culture moving in that direction, see, people like you and me in the Church of Jesus Christ, they understand that we're a restraining force in that. They understand that, and they hate us for it. And they hate us for it. Can you imagine what our culture would be like if in an instant God removed every Christian from the culture, every Christian voice, every Christian speaking for a, 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 a just and godly worldview? What do you think would happen to our culture? The speed at which it's moving toward the pit of hell would Increase infinitely. 
And the nation would be a moral sewer before you knew it. God uses the church as a restraining force. And you bet that when we act in such a way, it will garner hatred from, the, from those who are pushing the agenda. It will. You better know it. And you better toughen up about it. Because it's not getting better. What does all this mean for you? Our time's up. What does all this mean for me? And what does it all mean for you? We see in this text this. God planned the death of his son for our good. None other than Caiaphas utters that, believe it or not. God planned to crush his son so that he wouldn't have to crush you. The events that take place in the next uh, ten chapters of John's Gospel, the events that take place in the last week of Jesus Christ, are not a situation where God is making the best out of events that are running out of control. What we're going to see over the next week of time in Jesus' life, lots of weeks of time in our study, is that everything that takes place from this point on is part of the predetermined plan of God and everything works exactly as he planned it he tips his hat here through the voice of Caiaphas I am going to crush my son and kill him so that I don't have to crush and kill you that's what God is up to and that's his plan and even though at the moment and even though many moments along the way in this last week it's not going to look like a good plan it's not going to look like a good thing it's not going to look like God is control at the end of the day we see And God is sovereignly in control of every circumstance. That's helpful. That's encouraging to me, and I hope it is to you. Because sometimes when you look at the circumstances of your life, and you look around, and it seems like God isn't in control. It seems like things are spinning out of control. It seems like things are going in directions that we don't understand, and circumstances are not good, and events are not pleasant, and we're wondering if God's up there just trying to make the best out of our mess. And his message to you is, in the midst of that, oh no, I'm in this for your good. It's not out of control. If I can plan the very death of my son for your good, I can plan what's going on in your life right now for your good too. Just hold on. Just hold on and trust me. For every sin we've committed, Christ is our substitute. For every lie you told this week, Christ was crushed for it. For every lust that you're going to have this week, Christ died as your substitute for that. He was killed so that you wouldn't be. He was crushed so that you wouldn't be. He died as your substitute. That should humble us. It should humble us. It should drive us toward holiness like nothing else. Jesus didn't die for sinners in general. He died and gave his life on the cross as a sacrifice for sinners specifically. When you look in the mirror this afternoon or any morning when you wake up, I hope you do that when you wake up. You need to look and realize Jesus didn't die for me in general as part of people. He died for me specifically. When he gave his life on the cross, he died as my substitute. He didn't die just to open a way that I might one day possibly be saved. He died for every one of my specific sins. And his death included every bit of the means necessary to bring me to himself and secure me to the end. Personally. Personally. If you're a Christian today, you're a Christian because Jesus died as your substitute. He died so that he would pursue you. 
He died even for the rebellion in your heart that resisted him at first. And he died for every sin that you'll ever commit so that you wouldn't have to die for it. Praise God for what he's done for us. Would you close your eyes and bow your head? If you're here this morning, you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You're like part of that crowd who, for the first time, saw the power of Christ and the raising of Lazarus. And this morning, for the very first time, you're hearing that God has done something, that he has crushed his son so that he won't have to crush you. The decision is in your court. You have a choice to either believe that or reject that. To either embrace Him as your Lord and Savior and receive Him as such. Give Him your heart and your life from this day forward. Embrace Him. Love Him forever for what He's done for you. Or you can walk away. And you can reject Him. You can refuse to believe it. You can refuse to receive it. The choice is yours. But I pray and I plead with you today, receive Jesus. It pleased the Father to crush Him so that He wouldn't have to crush you. You don't have to be crushed. You can be saved. Repent and believe on Jesus this morning. Lord Jesus, we, we marvel at what You've done for us. We can't understand it. We can't explain it fully. There is no logical reason in my mind or my heart for why you would be crushed for one such as I. Why you would choose to die for my sin, I do not know. Heavenly Father, I don't know why you would crush your son for me so that you could give me eternal life. I don't understand it, but I'm eternally grateful. And I know that were it not for your work, I would have no hope. Heavenly Father, were it not for your plan, I would have no hope. Lord Jesus, were it not for your, for your commitment to follow through, I would have no hope. And nor would any of us. So Lord, I pray that you'd humble us this morning. You'd humble our hearts. That you would help us to see the cost of our sin. That you would drive us toward holiness today. And as we sang earlier, that you would keep us because we can't keep ourselves. For the man or woman who has heard this for the first time this morning, I pray that they would make the right decision and receive you. Turn from their sin and embrace you this morning, Lord Jesus, in belief and faith that their soul might be resurrected and come to life. You do your work, for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. 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 Pray it in Christ's name. Amen.